Let me begin by asking you if there has ever been a time in your life when you looked at a certain situation, you thought you understood it, only later on to discover that you had been fooled or, or maybe things weren't as they appeared. I'm wondering if there's ever been a time in your life when you've met somebody, you had your first impression of them, you kind of formed this whole idea, well, they must be this, this, or this. But then later on, as you got to know them, you found out that you couldn't have been any more incorrect about them, their character, their personality, things they liked, things they disliked. It is entirely uh, important to us, and the truth always rests on knowing the whole story, or the word I typically will refer to is knowing the context of a situation. And uh, if you've gotten to know me by now, there's a reason why I nag and nag that every time we study the Word of God, we had better first make sure that we understand what the context is. We better get the full story, the background. Otherwise, you come away from God's word with something completely different than what he originally taught or said. That's why you have so many different religions with so many different interpretations. Because if you don't know the context, this is what can happen. This has a fractured fibula, given a mild sedative. So I can be able to go on tomorrow. Daddy's going to be so excited. That killed him. Makes a point, doesn't it? You walk in on the middle of something, and you can read the situation completely wrong. We have something like that going on in our lesson today, and this will be the verses that we studied together. I'm not going to read through them now, um, but let me just preface them by saying that many of the people at Jesus' time, and specifically the religious leaders, could not have been any more incorrect, not only about God's promise of Messiah, but when Jesus arrives on the scene, exactly who he is and exactly why he had come. When it comes to Jesus, there's always more than meets the eye. And while we want to trust what we see, and just as they did, oftentimes there's so much more going on behind the scenes. That's very much true with Jesus. And so we've picked this theme, more than meets the eye, because Jesus is so much more. Not only what we see, but oftentimes what we give him credit for. And so that I don't mislead you down the wrong path or so that we don't leave this morning with an incorrect uh, or a misunderstanding of what Jesus is trying to teach us in this lesson, I want to show you the full context. So I'm going to show you the video that backs us all the way up to verse 1 of chapter 7 leading up to and then through the verses of our study today. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee. He did not want to travel in Judea, because the Jewish authorities there were wanting to kill him. The time for the festival of shelters was near, so Jesus' brothers said to him, leave this place and go to Judea so that your followers will see the things that you're doing. People don't hide what they're doing if they want to be well known. Since you are doing these things, let the whole world know about you. Not even his brothers believed in him. The right time for me has not yet come. Any time is right for you. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I keep telling it that its ways are bad. You go on to the festival. I am not going to this festival, because the right time has not come for me. He said this, and then stayed on in Galilee. After his brothers had gone to the festival, Jesus also went. However, he did not go openly, 
but secretly. The Jewish authorities were looking for him at the festival. Where is he, they asked. There was much whispering about him in the crowd. He is a good man, some people said. No, others said, he fools the people. But no one talked about him openly because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. The festival was nearly half over when Jesus went to the temple and began teaching. The Jewish authorities were greatly surprised. How does this man know so much when he's never been to school? What I teach is not my own teaching, but it comes from God who sent me. Whoever is willing to do what God wants will know whether what I teach comes from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Those who speak on their own authority are trying to gain glory for themselves. But he who wants glory for the one who sent him is honest, and there is nothing false in him. Moses gave you the law, didn't he? But not one of you obeys the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You have a demon in you. Who is trying to kill you? I performed one miracle, and you were all surprised. Moses ordered you to circumcise your sons. Although it was not Moses, but your ancestors who started it. And so you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. If a boy is circumcised on the Sabbath so that Moses' law is not broken, why are you angry with me? Because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath. Stop judging by external standards and judge by true standards. So you will recognize that's a bit of a different translation than the one that we're using today, but it serves the purpose. Um, to understand the full story, to get context, a lot of times when you're studying the Gospels, there's, I don't want to call it a trick, but there is a process you should use to help you put yourself correctly in the timeline of Jesus's ministry. And probably the best and most accurate way to do that is by looking at the festivals, the feasts that the gospel writers record. And John does an amazing job of that in our lesson today. He talks about this Feast of Tabernacles. Well, we read about that in Leviticus 23. It was actually one of the three annual festivals that required every adult Jewish male, according to ceremonial law, to travel to Jerusalem and make special offerings at the temple. And that's the setting in which we find this lesson. Well, that also helps us put us in the overall timeline of Jesus's ministry. And if you're looking at the screen, you notice we're about six months before Jesus is crucified. That tells us a couple things. The intensity of hatred against Jesus by these religious leaders is slowly but surely creeping higher and higher. And every interaction that Jesus is now having with these people, it's pretty intense, uh, not unlike what you saw in our lesson today. But it also shows us another thing, that even after two and a half years of ministry, there's still a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding, not only about who Jesus is, but ultimately about that promise of Messiah. What exactly did God promise to send into this world in order to help us? Now, much like society today, the people of Jesus' day were looking for temporary short-term answers. They wanted relief for the day-to-day -day problems, which God himself certainly wants to give us, but they weren't looking at the big picture. They weren't looking at the eternal picture. So understanding this entire whole story helps us when we realize 
this what seems to be a confusing situation. You heard that man uh, in the verses right before our lesson uh, claim Jesus was demon-possessed because he was completely unaware of any plot or plan to kill Jesus. Now, I've put up the verse that comes right after our lesson. And if you're reading through that, it talks about the fact that it was pretty common knowledge that there was a plot and a plan to kill Jesus. Now, a lot of Bible skeptics will look at that and go, well, the Bible's got to be wrong because the two don't agree. Until you know the context, until you know the backstory. You see, the man who made that statement that Jesus must be demon-possessed because he was unaware of a plot obviously was a man who had just recently traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Whereas amongst the people who actually lived in Jerusalem day after day, it was common knowledge. It was pretty much well known that these men had plotted and planned in order to get rid of Jesus. Now, why does any of this matter? It's because Jesus is taking the time and exerting the energy and effort to try and help people understand exactly who he is. We've got the benefit of 2020 hindsight, but the people of his day were often clueless because these religious leaders had actually mistaught what God had promised to send us. And so Jesus wants to clarify for the general public, but you should also understand that anytime Jesus has a confrontation with these religious leaders, he's not back-talking, he's not angry with them, he wants to save their souls. Because Messiah, what's more than meets the eye, is Jesus came to even rescue those people who were trying to kill him. And so John provides this very important information, and it leads into Jesus connecting the dots for the people to help them have a look behind the curtain to see what's not only going on in the hearts of these religious leaders, but what is God's thinking, too, about plan of Messiah. And so as Jesus connects those dots, he talks about this miracle that actually triggered what they're now experiencing. Before this event, the religious leaders were annoyed with Jesus. They didn't like the fact that he didn't have the proper credentials and he would show up and all the people would flock to him because he had taught like no other rabbi. But this one event, this miracle that he cites, changed everything. It went from annoyance and hatred to active planning. We have to get rid of this Jesus. That miracle that he's referencing was our gospel lesson. About 18 months before, the last time that Jesus had spent any substantial amount of time in Jerusalem is when he went to the pool of Bethesda and had cured that man. He's referred to as an invalid, a form of paralysis. Every time he tried to get in that pool, he just didn't have the wherewithal, the strength in order to rescue him. That John tells us, was one of the events that led to this now plotting to get rid of Jesus because, of course, like many of his miracles, he did it on the Sabbath day. I've included a few more verses that came after our gospel lesson because it now cites a second reason why the intensity of hatred in this act of planning to kill Jesus takes place. After much discussion, after much teaching, it was that miracle event at the pool of Bethesda and the actions that follow that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders finally begin to comprehend what it was that Jesus was claiming about himself as Messiah. He's claiming that he was not only sent by God the Father, but in essence is claiming the exact same glory and status as God the Father. And to the religious leaders of the day, that was blasphemy. Anybody who literally called himself God needed to be put to death. What they didn't recognize was that as part of God's Messiah promise, as part of God's plan to rescue us, he couldn't just send a man. He also needed to send his own son, God, because only God can save us human beings. And that's exactly who Jesus was, even though oftentimes people couldn't see it with their eyes.
Now, as this discussion unfolds, as Jesus makes reference to that, he talks about something that the religious leaders were absolutely blind to. It has to do with the discussion of the Sabbath, because that was the big law that they always got bent out of shape about. Maybe you remember two weeks ago with that lesson, I had actually pointed out to you that the religious leaders had created separate laws in 39 different categories. It's what's known as the Talmud, the rabbinical interpretation of God's laws. When I shared that information with you, what I didn't tell you at that time is, is that written within the Talmud were actually exceptions to the Sabbath law knowing that this lesson was going to come and I'd have an opportunity to point that out. For instance, Jesus even references one of them. If a boy and the eighth day of his life happens to fall on a Sabbath day, Moses' law requires you to circumcise him. That's part of the uh, covenant God made with Abraham. So you don't break the Sabbath law by doing the work of circumcision, do you? And the only logical conclusion they could come to is, no, we don't break the Sabbath law. They had even written that in there as an exemption. There are several other exemptions. Uh, for instance, if somebody falls deathly ill and needs medical treatment, or thank God there was the exemption, if a woman happened to deliver her baby on the Sabbath day, she could actually get some physical assistance, which ordinarily would be considered work. There's even some other gospel references, like to avoid danger or to help somebody in the event of an accident. Or in Matthew, Jesus says, you guys are so humane that if an animal falls into a pit on a Sabbath day, you're going to help that animal. Within the Sabbath laws. There were actually written rules how you could throw a mattress down there for that animal to lie on. You could lower food or water into that pit so that that animal didn't have to spend the night in such discomfort. In fact, that last line up there was written in the Talmud. Sabbath is intended that man should live by the law and not die through it. If you go to Mark chapter 2, Jesus has another run-in with the religious leaders. He basically states the same thing. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. You guys have taken a beautiful relationship with God and how he wants us to focus our entire life, not just the one day, but our entire life on him, his love for us, and everything that he's doing for us, and you've twisted it into some sick form of hoop jumping that somehow you hope and believe will actually make God love you. Jesus points out to them, you care so much for sick animals or somebody who might have fallen down, but here's a man who was dying, not just physically, but spiritually. And I showed mercy to him. And you say, I'm breaking the law. Well, it's your law. It's your interpretation. That's never what God the Father intended for his children. And in fact, Jesus basically points it out to them. He asks this question, why are you angry with me? Now, that's not actually what he's saying. That's kind of a soft translation. This word, kalao. Uh, it, it's this interesting word. He's basically saying, why are you so green? Uh, it, it's talking about a greenish type liquid like bile or gall. And it would, in their day, be used to talk about a kind of liquid that would be poisonous, and it got a figurative use. If you met somebody with a, a poisonous attitude, this is the word that you would use to describe kalao. Jesus is basically saying, what are you doing here? And answers his own question. Um, in fact, we have these phrases that have come from this word. Somebody's sick, their health has been poisoned, we say they're green around the gills. It, it comes from this word. Or what Jesus is really saying is the answer to his own question is they're not just angry. You guys are green with envy. You hate how the people no longer hang on every single one of your rules 
and all of your laws. You hate the idea that I've come here and have actually set them free from a burden which you've placed on them, not that God has put them through. You hate the fact that maybe you aren't the answer to all of their problems. And now somebody shows up and points them back to God and you want to kill them. And then Jesus makes that money statement. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a a right judgment. And I've highlighted that word because that's not actually what he says. He's saying you're judging other people. You're judging every situation in your life by a human system of judgment. What he says is that doesn't work. There's more than meets the eye. He says judge by not right but righteous standards. The only way you can judge a situation in this life, the only way you can judge another person is not by your own opinions or even your life experience. The only way to properly judge anything in this life or the next is by God's standards, his divine standards, his human standards. You see the problem with doing it the right way is that it meant that these religious leaders weren't any better than the next person. No longer would people hold them up as models of society and somebody to be aspired to. They were just another bunch of sinners who needed to be rescued from their sin. And so you understand what's really going on behind the scenes here is not just Jesus seeing what's in their hearts and reading their minds. He's exposing them for the hatred that they have toward the very one that God sent to rescue us from a damnation of eternity in hell. They couldn't stand the idea that Jesus shows up and points out that they weren't leading people to God, they were leading people away from God. And so Jesus says to them, as well as to the people, there's more going on here than meets the eye. You need to take a closer look. Which I find intriguing, and I'm not sure quite how to put this, but I always find it interesting that whenever we develop sermon series, that as time goes by, (laughs) I see the Holy Spirit at work. Pastor A and I, uh, some time ago, Uh, developed and finalized this epiphany series and I could have never guessed how each of these lessons would have been so specifically applicable to our lives now don't misunderstand I get the universal application of God's word it's the right thing at all the right times but I could have never guessed how each of these lessons these epiphany lessons have laid themselves out to speak to us the very words that we need to hear most and today it's telling us that we need to look beyond what we see with our eyes. And consider there has to be more here than, than meets our eye. Let me give you an example. For the, longest time, oh, for the longest time, we were being told that a change of administration, a new system of governing our country would be good. And whether you agree with that or not is beside the point. Um, we have a new president, God, according to the fourth commandment, we should pray for him. We should pray that we have good government. The explanation to the fourth petition, we have godly people to lead us. And so we need to be praying for that. The reason we need to be praying for that is because the very first full day of our new president's administration, nothing changed. I don't know if you heard about the rioting out west, but there's still sinful people doing sinful things because they're looking for solutions that are only temporary, because they're looking for solutions that are very short-sighted. And every human being thinks they have the right answer. But if you look beyond, if you start to examine what most of us conclude for this life, it couldn't be any more wrong. The reality is, is that we have to ask ourselves, are we not also in the same situation? Remember how we started. I can't imagine being that wife or that child standing there, the guy with the paddles going, that killed him. But it's a completely misread of the situation. 
And before we start pointing fingers at anybody or judging others ourselves, we need to stop and ask ourselves, are we seeing things as clearly as God would have us see them? Not only about what's going on in our world, but what's going on in our own individual lives. Because if we're honest, sometimes it feels like we're living in the middle of chaos. Things are spinning out of control, or at least it looks that way. And on the surface, that might be true. But let me ask, is that a proper judgment of the situation? Is that a proper uh, a conclusion of what God is allowing into our lives? Let me just ask a couple of questions to see if maybe we can't look at this a little more clearly and from a divine perspective. Is God still not ruling the universe from his heavenly throne? And is God still not choosing to rule according to the promises that he's made? He says, I will love you forever. And either he means that or he doesn't. I think if we look closely, we'll recognize that God has always meant that. And God does allow certain rulers to rise to power and others to leave office, not just in a national setting, but in our own individual lives. Think of fathers in their home, how sometimes they don't rule the house, or I should say father the house, as God would father that house. And so first, before we criticize others, we need to take a good look at our own homes and ask, am I letting God lead me? Am I letting God direct my family? Am I setting a divine example for my children so that they understand that no matter what happens in this life, they have a loving Father in heaven? Because God knows we human fathers don't always get the job done right. Let me ask you another question. Is Jesus still not the husband of what he considers us his bride. He first lived according to righteous standards, holy, did all the things that we failed to do, and then he gives his life for the love of his life. That's us. Does that still mean something or not? Do you believe that Jesus is desperately in love with you, and that's the reason why he gave his life? And now when he promises to rule all things and let everything work for your good, is that something that we can actually put our faith in? Is that something that we can actually trust and believe? Or do our eyes tell us that maybe that isn't something that we should live by? I wonder if maybe it wouldn't be a good practice for us to reinstate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, let me explain what that means. Once a year, we move out of our houses, we go put up some shack in our backyard, and for seven days, we live that way. Now, Israel did it to remind them of their journey from the land of slavery to the promised land. I'm just suggesting maybe we ought to think about doing this festival in our own lives so that we are reminded that we also are on a journey, that this is only temporary, that this world and this life are not meant to last any longer because of what sin has done to it. Maybe that would be the most physical and visible reminder to us that oftentimes because God blesses us so much in this life, it might be good for us to be reminded not to fall in love with this life. That it is only temporary. And that what God would have instead would be a longing and yearning for the next life. The better life. The perfect life. The one that we will all enjoy once we cross the borders of the promised land. And the only way that we get there. The only way we finally arrive is because we have a loving Savior that is much more than meets the eye. He came to take care of our sin, but he also came to take care of our pain and to take care of death. 
Oftentimes we always think in eternal perspectives, and we ought to, but sometimes we forget right now we're living as a part of eternity. And this Savior of ours is still our King, still our Savior, and still the one who loves us so much that he asks us to open our eyes after he first opens our hearts to show us he is always more than meets the eye. So still. So silent. Listening for God's will. Patiently waiting to hear him. Speak to my heart. Wishing I was flawless. Perfect and true. Wondering what life trials am I destined to endure? Eager to seek him, eager to grow. What's really inside of me, only he knows. Constant hunger, constant thirst, constantly striving to put the Lord first. Feeling unsettled like something's not right. It's a spiritual warfare, and I'm ready to fight. Help me, Lord. Make my heart your reflection. Calm my spirit, Lord. Point me in the right direction. With everything that I am, I want to serve you. Hold me in your hands, Lord, so I stay true to you. My life is yours, God. This I reaffirm today. In everything I do, Lord, you have the final say. My heart is heavy like a stone. My soul is crying out for comfort from your Son. Lord Jesus, come. Be everything that I am. Help me to see and live your master plan. To you, Lord God, I give all the glory. Be alive in me, Father, while I tell the world your story. I thank you every day, Lord, for making my path straight. I'm always falling down, Lord, remaining on my knees. It's a constant reminder, only you can meet my every need. So, I look to you in prayer, and I ask with a sincere heart, cleanse me, hold me, lead me into the light.